is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 2, Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist in Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed. When I'm not working on the podcast, I'm working on my fiber art and illustration brand, Close Call Studio. So if you want to follow along with my own journey, you can check me out on Instagram at Close Call Studio or check out my website at CloseCallStudio.com. It's Nicole here, your other Beyond the Studio co-host. I'm a painter, muralist, and installation artist. If you want to see more of my work and studio process, you can find me on Instagram at Nicole Marie Muller or my website, which is Nicole Marie Muller. That's M-U-E-L-L-E-R dot com. On today's episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast, we are here with Jamie Derringer, and we are really excited to share her story today. There's so much for us to dive into here. She's a successful blogger, artist, designer, and podcast host. Uh, Jamie, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you. We're so excited to have you. (laughs) (laughs) Would you mind just first introducing us a little bit more to your work in a nutshell? Oh my gosh, yes. I do a lot of different things. I am the founder and editor of a website called Design Milk, which shares modern design from around the world, everything from architecture to technology and fashion. I also have a sister site that shares modern dog products called Dog Milk. <laughs> my and personal an- favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I know, such a dog person. Um, and I have an e-commerce shop called Adorn Milk that sells architectural jewelry. And then I'm also an artist. I paint and I draw. Oh, and the podcast, of course, Clever Podcast. I, I co-host that with Amy Devers. We talk to designers uh, about their, their life and being human. Yeah, we're excited to have a fellow podcaster on the show and to kind of get into more of the behind the scenes of that, too. Is this our first interview with a fellow podcaster? Yes. It is. Welcome. Yay. (laughs) I love that we're all like in our home podcast studios. (laughs) I know. It's so great. I mean, mine doubles as my bed, but it's all good. I know. Well, I wouldn't even call it a podcast studio. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's just my my office with the microphone on the table. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's more DIY than maybe most people would expect, at least for us. We just have a, you know, a small mic and... We have these little pop filters to protect the sound, but other than that, it's just our laptops. And yeah, really when we were starting, anyone. we did like a bunch of research, and I feel like the the biggest hurdle for us was we had no idea how much time it was going to take. Like, oh my it, god, you know, I for know. people who want to start a podcast, like just be prepared that there's a learning curve and there's a lot of work behind the scenes that you don't know about. Oh yeah, this takes a lot of time. Yeah, just all totally of the emails does. and the scheduling. <laughs> And then recording and editing and researching yes. and coming up with your questions and having the conversations and so much more time. than you think it, it goes into it. <laughs> yeah. 
Although I feel like yeah. that applies with like any kind of any kind of work. Like you want to be your boss in some way, it's going to take a lot yeah. of time. Yes, and you've been doing that really successfully between all these different businesses that you just mentioned. Could you maybe start uh, with your story by taking us back, though, before before the podcast, before Design Milk? Um, tell us a little bit about your early journey. Like, what were the early days like, and how did some of these things come to be? How far back do you want me to go? <laughs> Ooh. When and where were you born? What was going on in the world that day? No, I'm just kidding. Actually, this is a little random, but I was just looking on your LinkedIn page and I saw that you went to a Loyola University in Maryland. Yeah, I did. I did. And I we're, went there we're for both a couple of years. Oh, okay. So yeah, awesome. man was in Baltimore. So, oh, okay, cool. Very cool. Yep. Yeah, I worked at the Towson Town Center. Um, oh my for god! A couple years. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to that mall and uh, movie theater many times. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yep. Yeah, that was my Trader Joe's for a little while. (laughs) So I went there and I I majored in English and communications. And then I took Japanese language as an elective because it just seemed really different than anything else I'd ever studied before. And I fell in love with it so much that I ended up transferring out of Loyola and ending up getting my bachelor's at Temple because Temple has an Asian studies major, which was it's one of the only, I think, Asian study majors, you know, on the East Coast. So I just tried to find a good program so that I could immerse myself in all things Japanese. So I ended up finishing my degree there in (laughs) in Asian studies, which is kind of a useless degree, to be honest, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I loved that and I just wanted to spend as much time with it as possible. But before I transferred, I was majoring in English and communications. And so writing, reading, all of those things, communicating in any way were always of interest to me. I mean, since I was little, I used to write poetry and short stories and things like that. And then I was editor of the literary magazine in high school and then also in college at Loyola. So just publishing in general was always really cool. But then I discovered the internet. And so um, I was like, oh, it changed everything. It did. It changed. It's totally changed my life. And then I realized like you can publish things on the internet. And so once I, I discovered, you know, live journal and then blogs, it was kind of like an eye opener for me that I just felt like I found something that worked for me. So I did a lot of stuff on the side as I, I was working a day job. Um, I ended up uh, working in medical and pharmaceuticals for about 10 years. I did like educational stuff and programming, um, events, a lot of publishing online and also physical like magazines and books and things like that. And then after 10 years, I quit to do Design Milk full time. I guess when did you start Design Milk and how long did it take for it to become your job? Like. Yeah. And did it start out, I'm wondering too, if you were even seeing the potential in blogging through that lens? Like, were you thinking of it as a new business venture or did it really just start as a creative outlet and grow from there? It did start as a creative outlet. I wasn't really thinking of it from a business perspective. I started working on it on the side in 2006 and there was a a very small online blogging community and I was part of that um, design sponge, apartment therapy, like those kind of home related sites were there. And so I, I was, you know, commenting and getting involved in the community there, but not really for any business reasons, just because I really liked furniture and I really liked, um, design and architecture and I had never studied any of those things and so I just was really Mm -hmm. into it in fact I actually sold furniture for many years 
through college and I, I loved doing it because I loved helping people pick out fabrics and stuff for their couches. I just thought it was really fun. And, and so I, I just felt like I, I don't know, I just felt like design was something I wanted to talk about. And at that time, like nobody was really talking a whole lot about design. I mean, you certainly had your magazines like Domino and stuff like that. Um, apartment therapy was great because it was a community, but I kind of wanted to approach it from a non-designer perspective. But really it was only for for me to start out. I just wanted to talk about stuff that I liked and I kind of used the website to bookmark things I was finding on the internet that were super cool. And then it, it kind of snowballed from there. I, I, I didn't have any expectations. One day I got an email from someone and they were like, can I put my ad on or my banner ad or my logo on your website and I'll pay you for the month. And that was like, ding, you know, light bulb went mm-hmm. off. And I was like, oh, like I'm, if I make a little money from this, that could be pretty cool. So that's kind of how it became a business. But it wasn't really until then that I thought it, it could be a business. And then I started looking into that whole advertising online thing. And I was like, oh, this could be actually be like a viable business. Like maybe I should put some more energy into it. And so I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it took about three years for me to quit my job. Yeah, I, I quit my job in 09. Okay. And what, what was it like? Or I guess what was the time frame of starting design milk and then expanding it into dog milk and adorn milk and just taking on even more well the dog site came around I think it was 2011 and I had had dogs for a while I was just a dog person but we were getting so many cool dog submissions to design milk and I was like but what if you're not a dog person like this just seems like wasted on all these people who might be cat people or might not have Mm -hmm. pets or whatever so I was like what if there was a website and I looked around and there really wasn't anything out there so Mm -hmm. I thought oh well I'll just make a little website I'll clone design milk and throw a bunch of dog stuff on there and see what happens and it did take off um and it's been you know a steady little thing plugging along with its nice little dog community and it's a great site so that was 2011 and then Adorn Milk I launched I want to say it was 2014 it might have even been before that, but no, 2014 sounds right to me. Everybody kept coming up to me at trade shows and being like, where'd you get that necklace? Or wow, look at that ring. I'm like one of those people that dresses all in black. So there's nothing interesting about me other than my jewelry. <laughs> so people were always complimenting me. And so I would forget where I got it or I'd be like, oh, I got it on Etsy. And I couldn't remember the designer's name. And Mm-mm. Etsy just became this marketplace where you got lost. There was no way to find people. And I thought, gosh, there's no... Yep no website out there that's like modern jewelry. I mean, you can certainly go to like the MoMA store or any gift shop related to an art museum and find these architectural jewelry pieces. But what if there was an online place where you could get it? And so I thought about it a lot and I was like, I don't really want to launch e-com because, well, number one, it's not my area of expertise, but also like, I don't want people to be confused and think it's a jewelry blog because it's a Dorn Milk and I have Design Milk. So I just tried a little bit to separate it. It's got its own logo that's a little different and I'm using it in a way where it's not just a shop. It's really to also expose people to modern jewelry from around the world. So in a sense, it's kind of like a magazine blog because I'm really trying to get those designers' names out there as much as I can. And I, I use Design Milk as a platform for that. So it it is an e-com shop, but I like to think that, you know, I'm helping these designers get a little bit more exposure too. It sounds like each of these things came about for you throughout kind of identifying something that was missing in mm-hmm. the space and then filling in that gap. But also it, it sort of sounds like you're 
you've been segmenting out the audience from Design Milk into these various niches. Mm -hmm. Do you see that continuing to grow in that way and kind of branching off into these more specific sub blogs? Yeah, I mean, I thought about that. And in the beginning, I really thought that was going to be the thing. Um, and I own like all these crazy domain names that are like milk. Oh, just thinking <laughs> ahead to potential. Every time I have an Smart. idea, I'm like, I'm just going to buy the domain just in case. So Love yeah, I have, what are, like, give us some examples of, of these. Yeah. What's your weirdest unused domain? Oh, I have so many weird ones. <laughs> I think I, I think I own like Arc Milk for architecture, t- uh, Tech Milk. I think I don't know Little Milk, which is like for kids. I just own Little a bunch milk. of stuff that will probably never happen. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I just sit on them because it's you know part of my brand. I mean, you never know, right? Someone could approach me, and the next thing you know, we could have another website. I think we got our domain before we started anything else. We're like, we'll figure out the name, get the domain, yeah. and then yeah. go on from there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Brand is is everything, right? So yeah, I I just uh, I I tried Art Milk for a while. That really didn't work out. I mean, there's nobody paying to advertise with art. I mean, it just doesn't. There's no market there. But yeah, I think Design Milk does a good job of pretty much being a hub for for most things. And at the moment, I don't feel the need to expand it or siphon parts of it off. Can you share a little bit of, since we're sort of focused on just the blogging aspect of your career at the moment, what is the behind the scenes of that look like for you currently? Um, Like how are you starting to grow it into more of an operation where you're working with a team and do you have an office space? Like what does that sort of look like um, for you now at this point? Well, it didn't look like much other than me sitting in my laundry room, which was my office uh-huh. when I lived in New Jersey. Uh, that was my office was also my laundry room for many years. And then I got pregnant and I was like, uh-oh, I can't do this alone anymore. I can't, you know, I can't have a baby and deal with that and be a mom and also do all the things I was doing. Because at that point, I was the everything, the designer, the programmer, the editor, writer, even the person who would like talk to the server administrator when the site went down at like three o'clock in the morning, it would be me on the phone, like freaking out. And I was like, I can't do that. So I started looking for people to help me. And that's when I started hiring people. I mean, it was kind of a, a, a need that I had at the moment. I don't know if I hadn't gotten pregnant, like whether, well, I probably still wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing it myself, of course, but I ended up hiring a couple of people at that point and a whole web development design team, which I still use today. They're like my saviors. They're wonderful, wonderful group of people. Um, They keep the site up and running. Yeah. So I got pregnant, hired people, and now it's only a little bit bigger than it was then. I like it small. It's nice that it's small because it's easy to be agile and flexible and operate in that way. And I like smaller teams. I was a project manager in my previous life for 10 years, and I always felt like the smaller mm-hmm. teams operated better um, or more smoothly and were able to get more things done more quickly. So I've always kind of wanted to keep it fairly manageable. I want to say there's about 10 people working on the site give or take, mostly freelancers. My managing editor, Caroline, is wonderful. And she, we all work out of our houses. I mean, we we don't have a central office. Everybody works um, at home or wherever they want to. I like that as long, I've always been the kind of person, because how I work is give me the deadline, 
I'll get it done when it needs to get done. But like, I don't want someone to breathe down my neck. Like, is it done yet? Like, when is it done? You know, that kind of thing. I don't, I don't want to micromanage people and I respect people's time. So as long as they do their job and get it done when things need to be done, I don't really mind if they work at home or at Starbucks or whatever. Yeah, that's sort of the beauty of working on in a digital space. And also seems like a great way to just keep overhead costs low, not having to oh, yeah. pay for a studio. And- totally. <laughs> All of our costs are actually go into our website because we have so many images on the site. Because, I mean, it's been around 13 years now. So if you think about it, you know, every post has five to 15 images in it. So that's a ton. We have so many images on the side (laughs) to host. So it just that that's what where the costs are is just like hosting all that content. I'm always so or well, recently very interested in hearing about people's hiring practices and growing their teams because I'm starting to reach that point where I'm like, I can't do this by myself. I'm overwhelmed. And I recently went to this women entrepreneurs dinner and they were talking about how statistically significantly less likely women are to hire employees than men are. Like, I guess the burden that women often feel to do it all and be it all and handle it all themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, the one woman show, it's like... A branded thing now you know yeah yeah and you don't want to feel like you failed or you don't want anybody else to think like that you failed either so mm-hmm. it's it's very difficult yeah I, I would totally agree with that I, I think that that we just set the bar really high for ourselves yeah and society, society. does it for us too <laughs> the <Yeah>. patriarchy <laughs> thanks <laughs> it's making us tough but overwhelmed <laughs> yes do you have, I guess, any advice regarding managing a team or, or hiring on employees for the first time? Yeah, I think the best way to look at it is think about the things that you could take off your plate that you either don't want to do or are not good at. Because I looked at everything and I was like, what do I, what am I not good at where I could hire somebody who's better at it than I am who will enjoy it more? And I always try to take those things off of my plate. And so one of the things I'm not great at, I'm just okay at, is writing. And that was really hard for me to come to terms with. Yeah, I was going to say just identifying that sometimes and admitting like what are your real strengths and shortcomings can be Well, also like I grew up writing creatively and and I wrote during my jobs and I I was always writing and communicating and I thought, gosh, I, I didn't think that this wasn't a strength of mine. So I ended up having other people write on the site. So I don't do as much writing on the website as I used to. Yeah, I would find things that you're just not good at or you don't want to do and take those things off your plate, you know, and keep the really important things on your plate. What got you started with the podcast or what inspired you to go in that direction and all the hard work that comes with it? (laughs) So the podcast came about for a couple of reasons. I'm a big believer in the universe (laughs) and the universe making, helping you make the things happen that need to happen. But I I met this woman, Amy Devers, uh, many years ago at a trade show. She had been on television before and I was very intimidated by her, but we were chatting (laughs) and she was very friendly. Um, And then I kept seeing her. And so one day I was like, oh, she came up to me and she said, I want to talk to you about this idea I have. And I was like, all right, let's just sit down and have some lunch. So we sat down and we like could not stop talking and found that like our goals were the same and our values were the same and the things we cared about were the same. Um, And we really hit it off. And that's how the podcast came about. It's like we wanted to share 
the stories because Design Milk is all about sharing the stories of the product and then sometimes, you know, sharing a little bit about the designer, but you don't really get the full 360 of somebody. There's no intimacy there, especially with like your phone now. People just scroll. It's like there's no connection. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to make those connections and we wanted to take it away from what we talk about on Design Milk and make it into something different but have it complement design milk in some way. So now we're talking to all of these designers about the, you know, how they grew up and how they learned about design and how they got started in their practice and all of these really interesting stories that they're just better told by the person in their own voice. And then Mm -hmm. you feel more of a connection to that person. And then you also feel connected to everything they do after that. Like once you've met somebody, even just through a podcast, listening to them, you can respect what they do more and appreciate it. I think a little bit more. So that's kind of the objective of the podcast. Yeah. And you've gotten to talk to some incredible designers through this. I would imagine it's also a great way to just broaden your own creative community and to sort of have an added excuse to reach out and have these conversations. I mean, that was our motivation for doing the podcast. So I have to assume that it's um, pretty similar as it's just a way to sort of bridge that maybe perceived gap between others working in your field or, you know, others who are doing really interesting things uh, to really have an excuse to sit down and have an in-depth conversation with them. Yeah, it's really great, too, because now I like go to a trade show and see somebody I had the podcast with and I can walk right up to them and be like, hey, it's nice to meet you in person, <laughs> you know, yeah. even though we've all already talked about like where you grew up and your family life and all of that stuff. But it, yeah, it, it really helps. It helps with networking and it really helps me get a deeper understanding of just design in general since I didn't come from that place. I'm, I'm not a designer. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's great to hear their stories of how they discovered design and just talking to creative people about being creative. And I've learned so much from the podcast. I've taken, I've written so many quotes down and so many good nuggets of wisdom just from talking to people who've been working as creatives for many, many years. Yeah. yeah. I know we relate to that. I feel like after every podcast, we're just like, that was so good. I yeah. learned so much. I can't wait to listen back and like really process it all again. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a bit about how this uh, was connected to Design Milk for you. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious if this just started out as a creative collaboration, kind of a, a more of a creative side project, or if there are other ways that um, these things are intertwined. Like, what is the overlap like between some of these projects for you? Um, or what role does the podcast currently play in all of this? Well, I think for Design Milk distributes Clever. So, you know, every time a podcast comes out, we share about it on Design Milk. And then what I like to do is you know, work with people who've submitted projects to Design Milk before, get them on the podcast to talk to them. So there's definitely overlap there. I mean, I work with a lot of the same people or groups and and PR and marketing companies and stuff to get to get the people, um, designers on on Clever. Uh, One thing that I do love about Clever, though, is it's it's different and separate from Design Milk in that we talk to people that might not even end up on Design Milk or ever having projects on Design Milk. We've talked to UX designers, we've talked to fashion designers, people whose work we probably wouldn't have posted. So it kind of branches me out personally to talk to more creatives beyond just um, product and, and furniture design um, and technology. So it's it's been really fun. But there is like that slight overlap between them. But yeah, I, I mean, everything I do kind of is interwoven 
and has some sort of like complementary part of it but it's not like building blocks where just one top on top of the other they're all kind of these separate things with little overlaps (laughs) little connections yeah. Well, you've kind of answered this a little bit already um, in that these are all really interconnected projects, but I'm curious, are all of these self-sustaining? Uh, like, how have you been able to weave all these things together into making a living for yourself and for the people that you bring on your team? Yeah, it's always a, a bunch of juggling. For me, it's Design Milk is the, you know, my number one priority. It's the thing that keeps all of us going. And then the other things get my attention once I've addressed all of the Design Milk related things that I need to do for the day, for the most part. Mm-hmm. So I usually prioritize myself like that. Like, okay, what are my top priorities? And my top priorities are the things that, you know, pay bills and are the things that have deadlines. And most of those things are design milk, although the podcast does have deadlines, very hard, specific deadlines. Um, And sometimes those end up happening on the weekends or at night, like whenever I can get them done. So everything else I do always feels like a side hustle, but they all do demand my attention, um, my full attention in some way or another. So I just have to compartmentalize my time and prioritize things the best way I can. And I try to balance that with like normal life because I can't work myself to death. You know, I've already built up this business. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I can only take on so much and I just need to make sure my plate has time for my family and also just time for me, you know, stress relief. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What would you say is kind of a typical breakdown of how you're spending your time between being a mom and being an artist and running a business with multiple tiers within it and being a podcaster. Like those are all full-time jobs that you're managing to do all simultaneously. Well, luckily, I mean, with the podcast, I have a partner in crime. So, you know, I'm only sharing 50% of the burden. And the beauty of that relationship is like we're both really strong in specific areas that are Mm -hmm. different from each other. So we and we fully trust each other, which is super important when you're working with another person. But, you know, I have my strengths. I play to those. She has hers. She does that. And that works out really well. So luckily, you know, you can share the burden, as you know, um, you know, being co-hosts yourself. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I have a really wonderful editor who runs Dog Milk and she pretty much runs with it. And she's wonderful at it. And so that also was just finding somebody who I can trust to take care of it. And then balancing my time with my family became increasingly important for me over the years as my daughter demanded more of my attention. You know, she wasn't just a sleeping newborn anymore. She was like (laughs) awake and like, hey, can you play with me? Like, you know, pay attention to me. Okay, I have to figure out how to do this. And over the years, as I've hired more people, I've been able to take more and more time so that now I actually have nights and weekends. Whereas in the beginning, I didn't have any of those things. It was nonstop working to build this thing. And now I've been able to manage my time to a point where I have my weekends that I can dedicate to my family. And like, I could bring my kid to the doctor at 8am this morning, and then, you know, be able to drop her off at school and then work and then, you know, so I and obviously, I have a very supportive husband too, who, you know, we share the parenting burden 5050 as well. So that that's always been very important that I've had him um, since the beginning to kind of 
be like my rock in case this whole thing blew up in my face when I quit my job. He was there to be like, okay, we're going to be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes such a big difference. I know we've talked about it on several episodes, but Nicole and I are also in like partnerships where they're so supportive and it makes such a big difference, even just handling yourself and like having someone that can kind of help you set the right boundaries you need to be the person that you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just getting through that emotional roller coaster of trying to navigate your own path when you are trying to establish a business for yourself. And I think it's it's even easier to take on that burden and pressure of feeling like you have to do everything yourself because in some ways you do. You know, you're mm-hmm. wearing a lot of hats and managing many things all at once. And I think it can easily become overwhelming. And it seems like identifying early on that you need more more people to to keep it running I think is is a theme we've been hearing too and not just for your own personal sanity and health but also for the success of whatever you're creating and so I think hearing that from a few people has actually helped to shift my perspective on it a little bit because it's really for the success of whatever you're building um, bringing on more people to help make that a reality um, as opposed to um, like you mentioned earlier that feeling of failure or like you have to give away something in order to you know to step back but that actually you know it has a reverse effect it's like you're bringing in more voices collaborating and you're helping to grow this thing that you helped build. And I mean, the people you bring in may be really amazing at what they do. I mean, it's possible they're better at something than you are (laughs) and they can help it grow even more. Even if you thought you were doing a great job, like they come in and they do a better job and you're like, wow, I'm so glad I made that decision. And just getting stuff off of your plate and trusting people, it it was hard for, well, it was really hard for me in the beginning because I'm kind of type A and I'm a a little bit of a control freak and um but once you start delegating and have the trust in someone it just makes everything so much easier and it's worth Mm -hmm. it you know it's worth paying that person the money because you know now I can go on a bike ride with my kid (laughs) you know yeah I think it's so easy to get stuck in this mindset that you have to be a martyr for your work especially when you are self-employed where it's like I have to do it all I have to be it all Mm -hmm. and this is a conversation that my husband and I are constantly having where for me especially I, I I have to remind myself like I am working really hard to have a life that I want but if I'm working so hard I can't enjoy my life why am I even doing this in the first right. place yeah yeah I think our society just is is so focused on like being busy and that being like mm-hmm. a good thing and like you know you yeah. doing everything yourself and they pat you on the back but then you realize like why am I doing all this <laughs> like I mean what reward am I getting out of it you know obviously a lot of clout on social media that's what matters right yeah <laughs> most important how many followers they have <laughs> uh, yeah It's refreshing to hear, though, because, I mean, as someone who is running all these successful businesses and has all these different creative ventures, I think just to hear a little bit of the the behind the scenes that, you know, it really takes a a lot of people to keep the ship running um, and that, you know, it is important to find some sort of balance um, for yourself to be able to keep all those things going. Because I think it's easy to maybe just look at exterior accomplishments of other people that we, we, you know, might follow on social media and we're only getting that sort of one-sided glimpse into their lives and just think that they are doing everything all the time and that they're always on and, you know, just to sort of feel defeated that you're not doing enough and there's not um, more 
time in your own life to make all these ideas and projects happen and and so just you know hearing that it, it actually um, happens over time and with a lot of hands involved than mm-hmm. just one person definitely i know we've talked about design milk and the podcast but we haven't talked about your personal practice of art making very much or at all yet do you want to walk us through your your journey with that a little bit <laughs> sure i was a pretty creative kid did a lot of different things. Used to go to the art store all the time and get new supplies. I've tried everything from cross-stitch to calligraphy to clay and painting and pretty much everything. And then for some reason, I kind of, I think I abandoned it for the most part to focus on writing. And so that's when I ended up doing English and communications and then switched over to Asian studies and pretty much abandoned all my artistic related endeavors. And I would say to get a practical job, but I mean, a degree in Asian studies is not getting a practical job. Um, (laughs) So I'm not really sure what my goal was out of that. I just knew that I wanted to study Japanese stuff for a while um, and ended up with a degree and then just got a job. And my whole career with that first job was focused on just excelling at my career, um, trying to find the right fit for me. And I never found the right fit, which is because I wasn't meant to do that. And so sometime in 2006, which is the same year I started Design Milk, I also started drawing again. And I think it was because at that point I'd gotten a job that I enjoyed and I had some free time. And I also felt like there was nowhere else for me to go career-wise. Like I didn't really want much more than I already had. And then I was like, is this it? (laughs) So I guess I just was having some wanderlust and that's when I started, you know, going on the internet and doing a lot of browsing and that's how I ended up doing the blogs, but, or the blog. And then also during my free time, I would doodle. So the doodling turned into like almost daily sketchbooking. And then that, when I got pregnant, turned into painting for some reason. I just felt like, oh, well, if I could draw, maybe I could take this onto a bigger canvas. And we had a house with a lot of wall space. So I was like, all right, I'll paint some stuff for the walls. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. So I was doing that. And then I got serious about it because I felt like it really helped me there. It was therapeutic. And the more I painted and the more I drew, the more I started exploring myself, which I felt like I put on the back burner for a long time. So it was really nice to feel that like emotional tension and you know, all of the stress kind of melt away, which is a lot of the stuff I do is very meditative and it requires me to have an empty mind. And that's really helpful for stress relief, but also helpful in that it allows me to have space for other new ideas to come in. Sometimes I have to force them out because they're work-related ideas. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not allowed to think about that right now. But it forces me to give myself time for, for me or for just nothingness which I think is really important and sometimes I do that when I when I go running as well I like to run and that keeps me completely out of my own head because I'll just listen to music and listen to my body and try not to think too much about it but that's when you start really processing ideas because I think once you think too much about things you're just so caught up in the thinking that you can't really see past that and sometimes you need to completely empty it to get at what you know you let those different ideas kind of come in and find their way in. Uh, I think people who meditate have those kinds of results as well. But for me, it's painting and running. (laughs) 
So I think you have such a strong presence online through all of these facets of your work. Did you just start to naturally uh, start to sell paintings while you were also growing these other facets of your business? Were people coming to you and expressing interest in your work through some of these other platforms? Or how did you start to sort of grow your practice into this other equal player in your life and work? Yeah, that was really unexpected. I mean, just because I'm online all the time, I it was natural for me to kind of share my artwork. Um, I also share like every time I go on a run, I have an Instagram story. You know, I, I, it's just natural for me to share all the things I'm doing. And I was able to secure a couple of really great relationships online through having shared my artwork. So I sell prints on a couple of different websites and I, I work with a New York based online gallery for original works. So I sell through, let's see, Minted and Art.com for prints and Uprise is the, the online gallery. And then I recently did a rug collaboration with Woven Concepts, which um, is a series of, of rugs we did together using my artwork, which was a really fun oh, and really new process fun. for me. Uh, yeah. So um, I've been doing a lot of that stuff, but I never thought of my art as a commercial thing or something I could mm-hmm. sell. It just started out as my own personal thing and turned into like a business. But I mean, it still remains a very small business and I keep it that way because it's really important for me to do it from a pure place, like completely pure, not painting for someone else. So I make work and then I share the work. And if somebody wants it, that's great. If they don't, fine, I'll keep it or I'll paint over it or whatever. Like it's, I I really want it to stay as fun as a hobby, you know, as I can keep it. But it's nice to have that to fall back on in case something were to happen um, with my websites at least I have this little thing that I've developed that'll keep me you know from being completely homeless (laughs) I know it can be so hard to I guess creatively like set those right boundaries for yourself so you know when you're creating authentically and when you're creating for the sale I personally am in a more like product-based maker business situation Mm -hmm. and I have to constantly check myself and be like do I make this because I want it and I believe in it or do I make this because I know it's gonna sell Mm -hmm. and if that's the case it's not worth it because it's not coming from a good from a good place well that's a really interesting point that you bring up because we recently had a conversation on clever with a designer Madeline Weinrib she closed her business because knockoffs were just killing her business and she said like we were talking about I think it was when you're making art and like people give it a lot of comments and likes and stuff then you get encouraged to to keep going but when you don't you know if it's like the stuff you're making and people aren't liking or commenting or anything it's you're not really getting the feedback you're looking for sometimes it's hard to like keep going and also it's hard to not keep going on the stuff that gets all the likes. So the popular stuff always ends up being what people are keep making. But sometimes your heart is with the stuff that doesn't get all the likes in the comments. And so how do you balance? Like, do you go where the people want you to go? Or do you go where you really truly want to be? And that's a tough decision. And I think if you're a working artist, it's hard because you're like, well, the people want this. This is what they want. Like, I got to do that because it pays my bills. But if you want to make this other thing, like, hopefully, if you keep making that commercial stuff, you'll have time to make the other stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I know. I mean, I can only speak on behalf of myself, but I know I try 
really hard to like the things that maybe are a little bit less fun to make like right now I'm you know in the in the heat of holiday season and so I'm just making constantly these little ornaments for wholesale and after a while they kind of stop being fun to make but I really love them and in the less busy seasons they're fine <laughs> uh, but I try to to balance it with like this is a project that I know probably isn't going to make a bunch of money but I love making it so much it like kind of creates that balance but I don't know. I, I feel like it's a constant struggle and it just changes yeah. every it day. It is. And like at what point are you making art versus being an assembly line? And so we, we also talked to Jonathan Adler and he was like, as soon as I stepped away from the making of like replicating all the things, he was able to be more creative. And I thought that was really interesting too. So like sometimes you need to step away from like doing these like repetitive things that people want and and actually like get a little more creative and do something different or new or exciting that doesn't mean you shouldn't keep making the things that people want so you can support yourself but you still have to make sure you take time away from that to you know push your practice forward yeah it seems like there's kind of an added pressure of working like in this time and age because you know I think artists always have that external pressure from coming from some source or you know even if they're working in let's say the gallery circuit where there might be an expectation of like creating work that is in line with work from another show that did really well so I think there there are always going to be those voices but it's so amplified uh, with the internet and social media where we we have access to such a wider audience and this like immediate feedback loop that I mean I don't have a huge audience to where this is a huge issue for me but just separating in general I think that the, the motivation for your work and it's hard to create that boundary between taking in fuel and encouragement um, from the people around you to you know allowing that to guide your decision making where maybe you need to spend some more time in self-reflection to really determine the direction that you want to go with your work. And I, there's just so many layers to what, you, at this point, you brought up. I think that's interesting because it's it's the social validation is sort of one aspect of it. But then it also, when your work is wrapped up in your um, livelihood, there is that consideration of what do I need to do just in order to pay my bills and in order to keep going with my work and what is also going to satisfy me creatively and keep me going and... Um, you know, help me to sort of innovate on what I'm doing. And well, we think about that at Design Milk all the time, too, because with running this, this internet business, you're always at the mercy of likes and follows and shares and all of those things and analytics. And one of the things we've tried not to do is only go where the likes are. Like we've certainly have a good size following, but we really don't want to just keep writing the articles that are popular because then you become this like one trick pony of clickbait. Um, And I see a lot of publications, they fall into that because they are beholden to results and like Mm -hmm. commercialization and all those. And we do what's best for the community. So like our one end goal is what how can we continue making good quality content that benefits the design community? Because that is really our bottom line, like expanding the community, you know, and sometimes we'll have top 10 articles, of course, or product roundups. But we also do lots of really long features or, you know, specific articles that we want to do because we know that 
it's important. And, you know, we will get emails from people that say, oh, I really love the article you wrote about this thing. And I'll be like, wow, you read that? Like, that was our least popular article of the month. But, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, that's the stuff that people, like the nuggets that people take with them. And we don't want to just be writing the stuff that's popular because that's not pushing the needle forward either. Like, how are you supposed to innovate when everybody's writing list articles? Yeah, yeah, that's such a great point because uh, it sounds almost counterintuitive. It's like if your audience is gravitating towards a certain thing, you would think that that's where you should go. Oh, no, you got to be a step ahead of them. Then you end up just recycling. Right, you're just recycling the same content. So, I mean, it really involves taking risks and putting work out there that you're not totally sure whether or not it's going to resonate with your audience right. in order to be that like trendsetter versus... Um, just sort of following the crowd and that's really what separates you as a successful business that's what separates like I think when you go and you look at influencers like I think most influencers are focused on what's popular and not what's going to be popular that's fair (laughs) yeah I mean they have to be setting the trends not just regurgitating them I guess Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know That's interesting. So as someone who works like really at the forefront of a lot of these new platforms and technologies, how do you navigate that currently? I mean, you've built up this really successful business. You're working in a lot of different spheres digitally. I'm curious, like what are some of how do you continue to look ahead and sort of work through like what's coming up? And are you constantly experimenting with new platforms? I guess this is sort of a blanket question. It could apply to the blog or the podcast or even your own work as an artist, but it just seems like there's, it's so rapidly changing um, that I'm curious how businesses that are in that space are um, navigating that and deciding on what to to take on and what maybe is not going to be worth the time. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, there's so much juggling and balance and then also looking not only what's new in terms of trends, but and designers and design, all that stuff. But then like what's new in in technology in terms of communication, because I'm in the business of communicating and sharing and I have to figure out like where the people are going to be in five years or even two years, you know, where are they going to be reading their content? How are they going to be reading it? So we not only have to figure out that, but then there's the whole like we have to make sure we're on top of all of the trends and the new things that are coming out. And so, you know, we go to all the trade shows and people, obviously most of our stuff comes from submissions. So we get submissions and then uh, we go to different design weeks all over the world and and different events all over the world to kind of see what the new stuff is coming out of other places because, you know, the, the U.S. is great and we have lots of trends here, but some of the people who are, you know, innovating are, are not here. They're in other places. Um, so we try to find like undiscovered pockets of interesting things happening. You know, we try to do that here in the U.S. too. Like what's happening outside of New York or outside of L.A.? There's so many other cities around the country that we could go to and see what's going on in those local markets because that could inform, it could become a bigger trend. Who knows? So always trying to look at what's new and, and what's next. And we look outside of design. We look at everything, you know, popular culture, fashion. I mean, technology informs a lot of what 
design is happening right now. They kind of inform each other at the moment. Yeah, so just trying to be ahead of all of that is, is difficult. So we're always looking. We're going down so many internet rabbit holes, <laughs> like crazy <laughs> Instagram hashtag spirals of like, you know, laying in your bed for three hours at night, looking at stuff, trying to make those connections in your head as to what's new and what's next. Yeah, I suppose it's hard to predict the future too but are there any um past examples Uh, now i'm curious where you've had to maybe make some substantial changes to the way that your business is run in response to any anything like that well i never really wanted to do original content on any other platform other than the website but we are doing some original stuff on instagram but I still want to make sure the the website is like our number one place that we maintain and we keep all original content there as much as possible. So that's a mm-hmm. little bit of a way that we changed doing things. Uh, we've changed our website layout like a million times, depending on like what people are doing, um, how people are digesting information. Uh, we've seen a downward trend of tr- Twitter being not popular anymore for us. Uh, certainly not for news. I mean, that's like the number one place people are getting their political um, and, and national and international news now. It's wonderful for that, but it's not so great for sharing just online content and, and articles and things like that anymore. Um, but we're yeah. still finding other platforms to be really the most popular for those kinds of things. So we'll keep on top of that. Yeah, I, I, it's, I don't know. It seems like these decisions are a little more data driven, like maybe looking at the analytics and determining these things as opposed to like we're just talking about the content and how that's a little bit more about like stepping ahead and taking risks and really showing what you believe in. Um, Whereas this type of decision making sounds a little more like technical. Yeah, I mean, we have to be where the people are. We can't be like screaming into a, you know, empty room. So we try to navigate to where all of the people are going. We try to be everywhere you know, as much as we can be. We only have so many people, so we can't be like individually typing every headline on every platform. We have, but we're lucky in that we can push out stuff automatically. And then when we need to, we are there physically as a human, like typing and responding and stuff. So we try to do that to the best of our abilities. But yeah, we have to go where the people are, but we also have to make sure we know where they're going next. Like if there's a new platform coming out, yeah, we're going to sign up for it and just have a presence. I mean, we have presences on Mm -hmm. tons of websites that don't have anybody anymore you know because they're new and we're like we got to get on there and then it fizzles out but like we have a Flickr account like we even still have I don't know you just never know I think I still have mine I don't know what's gonna happen with Instagram maybe everybody will go back to Flickr yeah yeah who knows retro it's so it's so hard to know where people are spending their time, what's the most useful platform yeah. for you, and it's... I mean, it's different for everybody, too. Yeah, and it, it's... I feel like it's a little terrifying putting so much effort into these different platforms, because, like, I... Like, most of the people that find my work find it through Instagram, and sure, I run my Instagram, but, like, I don't own Instagram, yeah. so, like, if that platform goes away yeah, or becomes less popular... the technology. Mm-hmm. How, like, can I sustain? I don't know. Like, how how can I predict what's going to be popular and what's Well, I mean, next? think about what happened with Facebook and the algorithms. I mean, so many businesses, like, had problems because they couldn't mm-hmm. reach their customers anymore. So putting all yeah. your eggs in one basket is never a good business strategy, in my opinion, especially with the internet. That's why we still have the website because we're like, okay, we at least own all of this content. So if everything else fizzles, Mm -hmm. we still have this thing that we've Mm -hmm, built and we own and we can continue sharing on whatever platform is next. Yeah. And that's so necessary because 
at the end of the day with social media, like as users, we are the the product of that Mm -hmm. media. Like we are what they need is more people on the platform. Yeah. I mean, Etsy, they closed their wholesale division and I think a bunch of people. Oh, I know. Amanda knows about that. It it fucked me up big time. That was like my biggest dream of income last (laughs) holiday season. And then I immediately was like, okay, well, it's tough. It's tough though, because you rely on these technologies and like, you think they're always Mm going to be there. And then the next thing you know, they're like, well, we're pulling the plug on this. I mean, that was what lit a fire under my ass to finally finish my website that was under construction for like a yeah, solid year go. and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The internet is amazing and overwhelming. Yeah, it it's is. the best and the worst. It is. Do you have any blanket advice for anyone interested in blogging, podcasting, being an artist, running a business? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to be segmented, but like any advice you would recommend? Yeah, I I mean, in general, there's just so much out there now. I mean, the internet has democratized pretty much every business, right? Anybody can start in anything at this point. I mean, Mm. you're not maybe not like surgery. But like, for the most part, anybody (laughs) could start a website and sell whatever they want or write whatever they want. Yeah. So it's really, really hard to get yourself noticed out there. So, you know, I always say like, do something different. And of course, everything's already been done, but try to do something different in a different way than someone else has done it. Even if you feel like, you know, certainly there's a million landscapes that have been painted, but you could paint the next landscape that could be different in some way or another that gets everybody's attention. You just never know. There have been thousands, hundreds of thousands of chairs designed, but maybe you can design the next chair. I mean, the world really doesn't need more chairs, but if the chair has something special to it that hasn't been done before, then maybe they do need, you know, I don't know. Well, it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about not just sort of chasing that social validation, but really trying to keep your work at the heart of it. And oh, that's the that. other thing. I was going to say, like, don't go just where all the likes are because you want to be a step ahead of everybody. So thinking about what's next. Yeah. Yeah, and you want to be authentic to your work. And so this is a little bit of a segue, but um, part of the, the conversations we've been having for the season with artists along the West Coast are the role that place plays in their work. And this conversation has been really interesting because so much of your work is shared virtually. So it's really about how to navigate that mm-hmm. space. But I'm also curious to know what it's like for you living in SoCal and maybe the role that this plays in your work in life oh the location for me has played a huge huge role so I started my business I started my business on the east coast and then moved to the west coast and then moved back to the east coast and now I live back on the west coast so um (laughs) this is my second cross-country move but this is we're done like this is we're settled and we live in San Diego we love it here we love southern California it offers us everything in terms of nature activities like stuff to do like this just never ending amazingness plus we hate cold and we hate hot so it's like perfect because it's in between yeah I mean we ended up here because we had a lot of friends who loved it here and we felt like it was isolated enough and but still had access to so many different wonderful things and the weather is pretty much perfect like 
90% of the time, but it's really helped me in many, many, many ways. Number one, the lifestyle has helped me be more chill because I, in New Jersey, I was very high strung. I was very fast paced and I still feel like that during work, but at least when I'm done work, I can chill out. But now I'm actually, it started permeating into my work because now I say things like, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. I'm like, who's that? Like, it's what? like an out of body experience. You're like, like, who's saying these things? Uh, you know, oh and God, people are like, but what time? But we have anxiety. to have the deadline and we have to be organized and we need a spreadsheet. And I'm like, it's going to be fine. Like, relax. We'll take care of it. It's fine. <laughs> so, those are things that California people say. And like, it used to annoy me, but now I'm one of those people. Um, <laughs> because in the end, it is all fine. Like, all the freaking out about it is not worth it. And so, I'm starting to realize that, that and, and I'm starting to chill in all aspects of my life, which is great. So it's had a big effect on me, quality of life, lifestyle, stress, huge impact. Also, the fact that we can be outside 24-7 is amazing. 365. I mean, we're always outside. Um, and I have mm-hmm. a, a kid, like I said, my daughter is now seven. So she surfs, she skateboards, she rides her bike, she's outside, you know, but she can be outside. And like last night, we had a block party. And like, there's no way I would have had a block party at this time of year in New Jersey. We'd be freezing. I mean, it was <laughs> yeah. chilly here, but it wasn't chilly enough for us not to be outside, which made me feel great because she could be out at any, at pretty much any day of the week. And so it keeps her from being cooped up. And I really appreciate that about where we live. And also my studio is my garage. So my studio is never too cold. It's never too hot. I can open the garage door and get, you know, sun. I get my vitamin D every day. Um, and I also mentioned I run. So being outside, I mean, all of these wonderful things about living here have really helped me maintain a positive overall lifestyle and emotional state. So I think it's helped with my stress reduction, which in turn helps me be a better boss, a better wife, a better artist, a better everything, mom, you know, all the things. So yes, definitely. But the nature here is wonderful too. I mean, being able to go to the beach in 15 minutes or go to the desert in an hour, um, go to Mexico, go to LA. I mean, we're, we have access to so many wonderful places here. And that certainly informs me in terms of art, but also the design community in Los Angeles has grown exponentially since I moved here five years ago. So being able to go to LA frequently has been really great for the business. So, I mean, so many, it's just been amazing to live here. Yeah. Well, that's a great response. I feel like because our conversations are so career focused, a lot of the artists that we've talked to, um, we've been speaking more in terms of the kinds of challenges or opportunities, you know, career wise that a particular city might offer them. But um, just in terms of wellness to hear, you know, what a big role place plays. Yeah, for me, it's not about that. Yeah, the opportunities are there because it's virtual for the most part for me. So it doesn't really matter where I live. Every once in a while, I have to get up really early because I have to have a conference call with like Denmark. (laughs) So like every once in a while, I'm like, if I was on the East Coast, I wouldn't have to wake up so early. But I mean, I love being like on on two o'clock on a Friday, nobody's emailing me. It's wonderful. So there's like trade-offs, you know. Yeah, everyone on the East Coast is... But environment for me is is everything, I think. Um, It really helps me a lot. I was just going to say I'm ready to move to Southern California now. (laughs) I feel like I could do one of those like TV ads for for San Diego. (laughs) We'll call this an unofficial podcast ad for SoCal Living. Yeah, everyone go to San Diego. I've been there one time. I well, like no, it. I don't want everybody to move here because then it'll become 
overcrowded and overpriced, and it's already overpriced. So, all right, stay out of San Diego. They <laughs> just come visit. They've maxed and out. Then They've leave. had too much. <laughs> Go visit, contribute to the local economy, and then get on out yeah, of there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, as a creator of media, what are some of your favorite forms of media to consume? Like preferred podcasts or publications. Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I live my life <laughs> scrolling question. Instagram for the most part, but that's kind of a cop out. I love art. I mean, I love to go see art. I love to experience it. I love movies. I love listening to podcasts. I mostly listen to podcasts that about like businesses and like the successes and failures of businesses and entrepreneurs because I can relate to that. But I also listen to some that are, you know, just like funny or I don't know, silly. Um, right now I'm listening. So I I like this author, Melissa Broder. She's an LA-based um, poet and writer. And she has a podcast called Eating Alone in My Car. Oh, boy. And it's... Why didn't I think of that idea? <laughs> and she, she talks and writes a lot about depression and anxiety and discomfort with self. And I, I really like her a lot. So I listen to her podcast just because I can... I can relate to her. I believe she grew up on the East Coast uh, in like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York or something like that. So I feel like a kinship with her having lived there, grew up there and then moving to Southern California um, and depression and anxiety issues and all of those things. So I, I really relate to that. And I go on binges with podcasts, though. I'll listen to like 12 episodes and then I won't listen for a long time. Um, it just depends on what it is and where I am. When I drive to LA, I, I love listening to podcasts. But yeah, I, I love consuming all types of media. There isn't like one thing that I'm like, that's my thing because I, I love it all. One thing I don't really like that much is TV, but I, I'll Netflix binge. But for the most part, like I'm over. I don't know anyone with cable anymore. Yeah, it. it's just I mean, we subscription have cable, based. But, I mean, we don't really consistently watch it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I have cable, but just because it was an add-on to getting the faster internet. Oh, yeah, 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 I do. Yeah, that's probably why we have it, too, because it's like a bundled package. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, I don't need that part, and they were like, it comes with it no matter what. Yeah, and we have a landline, too, which cracks me up. I'm like, why do we have a landline? (laughs) Like, it was part of our package. Like, you had to have a landline. Like, all right. Yeah. Nobody calls there. Well, I don't want to take us on a whole another rabbit hole as far as conversation. I know we're sort of getting close to wrapping it up here, but I am just a little curious about your background before getting into these creative ventures. I know you worked as a project manager and in marketing, and I mean, it's easy to see how those things would really inform your work as the work that you do now. And I guess I'm curious, like what types of skills you brought over from those past lives that you feel were really instrumental in launching this creative career? Because a lot of the artists we've been talking to are sort of coming from the opposite place where they were trained as artists or they had some kind of career creative background and then they're kind of making up the difference in trying to build this business savvy and develop these skill sets in order to sustain their work. Whereas with you, I mean, you've had this incredible business background coming into the work where you've been really able to tap into your passions and and turn that into something sustainable. And so I'm curious, like if, like what were sort of the key skills or things that you took with you from that background? Yeah. I think growing up, I was really creative and imaginative as a kid and then somehow forced myself to be, I don't know if it's left-brained or right-brained, but more of the like analytical and like focused 
methodical, organized side of the brain throughout school and then high school and then into my career. And so some of the things I take away from that is my organizational skills and my ability to manage lots of different people doing different things and project managing like deadlines and things like that. It's very helpful to keep an editorial calendar and manage all the people and all the things that they're doing. So that I think has been critical. And then also being able to communicate well via email because I worked with a lot of doctors like the top doctors in the country or in the world so I had to write these like really very professional emails and and I had to seem like I was super professional or older than I really was but here I was like this 22 year old like you know kid right out of college typing these emails (laughs) to these fancy doctors Uh So I learned how to be incredibly professional and a lot of etiquette, um, stuff like that. So I think all of that really helped me with this job, just bringing all of those skills over. Um, And then I did have some experience in marketing and advertising. It wasn't a lot. It was mostly just like events and publications, websites and things like that. But I think interacting with all those people and learning how the projects that I was creating were being distributed and marketed and all of that was really helpful. And then analyzing results and being able to figure out what to do with those results. That was always something that I thought was helpful too. So I brought a ton of stuff, but as I'm getting older, I feel like I'm migrating back to my like younger kid days when I'm less focused on the organized stuff and maybe a little bit more daydreamy, but or it's that California vibe. It could be. I mean, I don't know <laughs> what it is. Uh, I still am really good, at, you know, at doing all the things I need to get done during the day. But I cherish the time I have now to kind of step away and you know let my mind wander and be more creative. Do you have any um, upcoming creative projects or ideas floating around that you hope would turn into a reality one day? Oh, gosh. Um, right now, I've Aside just... from all those domains, of course. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll launch one of those. We're, well, yeah, we'll wait for uh, Tech Milk and what did you say? Arc uh, Milk was the other one to come out. That's probably not happening, but... <laughs> Aside from that. I mean, never say never, right? Right now, I, well, I just finished a series, which I don't think is completely finished. It's probably still ongoing, but a, a bunch of artwork I did um, for an art fair recently. And hopefully I'll be launching those pieces in early 2019 online um, through Uprise, hopefully, or somewhere else. I don't know. Maybe I'll sell them direct. We'll see. And I just started a new artistic series that is very personal and it focuses on emotion, feelings, and memory. And so it's a kind of a big undertaking. And who knows, it'll probably be one of those things that's never done and always a a project (laughs) because it's art and it's personal. Um, And I'm always growing and changing. But I'm really excited about that right now. So I'm looking forward to kind of doing some stuff over the Christmas break. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, other than that, just keep it on with the podcast and the websites and just keep on keeping on seeing where the internet goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've talked uh, about all of your adventures already, but where can people find uh, your work if they're interested in taking a further look at your blogs, podcast, and your personal art? Okay, so we've got designmilk.com, dogmilk.com, adornmilk.com, jamiederinger.com, and that's Jamie, J-A-I-M-E, like Jaime Derringer.com, um, and cleverpodcast.com. Awesome. awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. This Thank was so you. fun talking to you. It was fun. I, I like it. I feel like I'm on the other side. Yeah, <laughs> how does it feel to be a <laughs> podcast interviewee versus yeah, a podcast I know. host? It's awkward.
<laughs> I'm not used to being like the center of attention. I'm always the one asking the questions. <laughs> but thank yeah. you. You, yeah. you asked a lot of great questions. It's been really fun. Thank, thank you, you so for much. being willing to be our guest and just be so honest and share your knowledge and experiences. And we can't wait to share this episode with our guests. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Um, and full disclosure, my dog is in the room with me, but she hopefully she won't disturb us. But All good. Both have animals, actually. My dog is sleeping <laughs> on the couch here too, and Amanda's cat Brussels sprouts usually makes an appearance at least once. Oh, cute! That's a cute. Yep. Name. My dog's name is yeah. Chicken. Yeah, I have the door closed, but we might we might hear her begging for attention <laughs> at some point, just knocking on the door, and we probably will hear the elementary school across the street because no the kids are very loud. This is Chicken. Oh, hello. Good dog! Oh my god. Sorry, I have a siren. One moment. Also live near the fire station. Just all kinds of noise in this neighborhood.